because there were no worries, there were no pains, angers, heartaches. They did not need any forgiveness because there was no sin. They only needed fellowship with God, the fellowship that they were created to have. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Consideration of the book of Genesis, starting chapter 2, and looking once again at God's good work in creation. Today we're just looking at three verses in the seventh day. And I was really looking forward to studying this and to bringing it before you, because often we tackle 10 plus verses at a time going through God's word. So anytime that we can come and just consider a couple verses together, it's wonderful because we can dive very deep and dig into the word. Before we do that, though, we must be reminded to come to God's word this morning with reverence, with awe, with humility, because this is not just any other book Even though it is the best-selling book in all of history, it is way more than that. It is the very Word of God. And we've been reminded the last couple weeks that God has created us. He's created this world. And as our Creator, He has authority to mold His creation for His purposes. And we know that He has not stayed silent. In fact, He spoke this world and us into being with just a word. And yet, he has also preserved and written down his word for us. And this word has authority in our lives for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. We know that God's word is sufficient, meaning that we have everything we need for life and godliness in these pages. His word is inerrant and infallible. That means that it's absolutely true and totally trustworthy. We can trust God's word. And the word of God is active and alive for today. It is powerful. It's living. It's nourishing and sanctifying. Charles Spurgeon on God's word, he gave an analogy to creation and the sun in the heavens. He said, the sun in the heavens is everything to the natural world, and the word of God in the heart is everything in the spiritual world. The world would be dark and sad and fruitless without the sun, and what would the mind of the Christian be without the illuminating influence of the word of God? If you despise Holy Scripture, you are like one who despises the sun. It would seem that you are blind and worse than blind. For even those without sight enjoy the warmth of the sun. Beautiful words from Spurgeon. So may we not be blind and foolish this morning 
as we hear God's word, but rather may our lives be conformed to it as part of the grace of the Holy Spirit and how he works in our lives and uses his word to conform us to the image of his son. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help once again. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that was given to us, and we need your help this morning to understand it. Please open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to receive and to apply this, your very word, to our lives. We thank you that you have spoken to us. Hebrews says, long ago you spoke in many ways through the prophets, but now you have spoken to us through your Son. And we see your Son revealed in your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're actually starting with Nehemiah 9.6 this morning. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. In the last couple of weeks, we've gone through Genesis 1. We've been reminded of the glory of God in creation, the goodness of God on display, the awesome power and majesty of his work from the vastness of the universe. You remember we saw that huge star that just dwarfs our sun a couple weeks ago down to the Romanesco broccoli, that beautiful broccoli that has those mathematical spirals in it. The Puritan pastor Francis Raworth said this, the Lord made as well the least worm on earth as the most glorious angel in heaven. And it costeth the Lord as many words to make a worm as to make an angel, for all was done with a word. It is no disgrace for the Lord to walk up and down by his providence and overlook all his creatures. The baseness of any creature no more defiles God than a dunghill vapor infects the sunbeams." God is great in the greatest creatures, and he is great in the smallest creatures. Yes, he is. Well, as we finished out chapter 1 two weeks ago, we looked with gratitude at how God chose to create us, men and women created in his image for his glory. And he directed us to have authority and dominion over this earth, over creation, and to enjoy the blessing of it. And we were reminded, as we are often here at church, that we are to enjoy God's grace and we are to extend his glory to all of creation. As believers, it's the Lord's desire that we would grow and we would be conformed to the image of his son, growing in holiness as the spirit works in us. And also in these opening chapters of Genesis, we have wanted to defend and stress the importance of the biblical account of creation. Our view of Genesis and creation can affect at how we look at the rest of Scripture and how we look at God himself. It's the foundation for everything. And these chapters tell us that God created the world, that he spoke the world into existence out of nothing in six literal 24-hour days. And to deny that or to try and mix it with the godless theory of evolution is to move towards denying the very nature of God himself. Because God is the very essence of truth. 
He cannot lie, according to Numbers 23.19 and Titus 1.2. So whatever the subject the Bible speaks about, be it the origin of the universe, the nature of mankind, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, whatever it may be, it is true. And it's our desires as pastors that we would all grow in our understanding of this, being ready to speak the truth to anyone who asks. And there are a great many resources on this topic. We've mentioned a couple of them to you, but two, two great organizations that we would recommend to you again. First is ICR, the Institute for Creation Research, and the second one is Answers in Genesis. Uh, my my parents, my dad, he bought our family a subscription to Answers in Genesis. They have a streaming platform that you can get on Apple TV and other things. And they've got a great, a lot of programs, a lot of really interesting things for kids, for adults, series, movies. It's been uh, really wonderful to watch those. So I highly recommend that to you. Today, however, we come to chapter two and we come to the seventh day. And in fact, as we look at three, these three verses, we see that the seventh day is mentioned three times. And that is significant because the seventh day stands apart. It is unique. And it's even pronounced as holy in these verses. My daughter, Kira, she really enjoys Bible trivia. And we have a Bible trivia book that we dig out every once in a while. We go through some questions. And so here's just a bit of Bible trivia for you. In verse 3 of chapter 2, it is the first time that the word holy is mentioned in the Bible. Your translation may say sanctified, but it is the Hebrew word kadesh, which means to be set apart, to be consecrated. And it's God himself who declared that this day was to be holy. So it's a very special day. And the best way that we can understand the significance of this day is to look at the three verbs that are associated with the seventh day. And so that's going to be our simple outline this morning. We're going to see that God finished his work of creation. God rested from his work on the seventh day. And God blessed the seventh day. These are the verbs we see. And so once again... Verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And so it's very clear here. We're told that creation was finished on the seventh day and God ceased from working. That phrase there, all the host of them, that refers to every part of creation. That it was complete, it was all done. And as we'll see soon, the rest of Genesis 2 gives us more details into what happened, specifically in the creation of men and women and the creation of the Garden of Eden. But it is clear here that creation was finished at this time. The rest of Genesis 2 is not more creation. It just gives us more details into what had happened. And the Hebrew word here is kala. And it means exactly what it says, to accomplish, to cease, to finish, to be complete, or be ended. And this means that at this time, nothing new was created. It was totally finished. And this shows us, once again, that evolution is false. 
as the whole process of evolution necessitates new creation, that species continue to evolve and, in fact, are still evolving. And Pastor Pilgrim, in the last couple of weeks, has clearly explained to us some of the fallacies of evolution. In fact, uh, he even did a special teaching to our youth group, and it was broadcast live on Facebook. If you haven't seen that, we would encourage you to go back and watch that. But if you believe in evolution, you have to believe that creation is still happening. And this is in direct contradiction to God's word, which says that creation was completed. And Genesis 1 and 2's account of creation is simple. It is easy to understand. There is no confusion here. And it's even important, and it comes out in how we share the gospel. Because when we share the gospel, we must start with God as creator. We start with who he is and what he's done. We know that God created this world and us in perfection. And that he is holy and without sin. And yet, as we'll see in a couple weeks, Adam and Eve did sin and the world has never been the same. And so we have to go to Genesis and we have to go even to Exodus, to the moral law, to the Ten Commandments, to see how we have all broken that law before we can go to the good news of John 3.16 and other places. The bad news and who God is has to be understood before we can truly appreciate the joy of the good news that's offered in Christ. And so the work of creation is finished. And verse 31 of chapter 1 sums it up for us as well. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so when God says that it was very good, it was his stamp of approval. It was his affirmation that it was complete and it needed nothing else. Well, the second verb that helps us understand the significance of this day is in the second half of verse 2, which says, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And we come to some interesting questions when we think about why God rested on the seventh day. Uh, because if, you, if we were to look at this from our own human perspective as frail children of dust who need rest every day, we might think, well, oh, God was tired, so he needed to take a nap and have a day off. But that is not, of course, what is meant by the word rest here. Other places in Scripture clearly show us that God does not need rest, that he does not tire out. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Also Psalm 121, 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is omnipotent. He does not tire out. Now, the Hebrew word here for rest is shavath, and it simply means to cease or to stop, to rest, but not in the sense of being tired, just simply stopping what you are doing. So as God finished his creation, there was nothing left for him to do, so he simply ceased his work, and that's what the word means. 
In fact, it's the same word used later on in the book of Exodus as the Mosaic law was introduced and the Sabbath was instituted. Let's just turn over to Exodus 20. Let's do that together. We're going to look quickly at two passages in Exodus. So first, Exodus 20. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11 just briefly. Of course, we know Exodus 20 is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And as we come to verse 8, we come to the commandment of the Sabbath day. Exodus 20, verse 8. The Lord says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And here's the call back to creation. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Here it is in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so you could read that and simply as, and the Lord did no work on the seventh day. It's the same verb there, Shavath, to rest. But turn over also to Exodus 31. Just about 11 chapters, a couple pages over. In Exodus 31, we see a reiteration of the Sabbath, but specifically verse 17. It gives us a new angle to God's rest. Exodus 31, 17. He says, it is, a sign, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And so we have a new phrase here. He, God was refreshed. What does that mean? Very interesting. Well, in the first two passages in Genesis 2 and in Exodus 20, we see a negative aspect to this, that God stopped doing something. But here in Exodus 31, there's a positive side to this, that God was refreshed. And the Hebrew word means to stop and to take a breath. But when we apply it to God, we know that his refreshment is not based upon any weariness on his part, like we have just said. No, a better way to understand this is to look once again back to verse 31 of Genesis 1, where it says that he saw that everything he made was very good. He stopped his work, and he took delight in what he had created. He was satisfied with it. Pastor Pilgrim brought this out as we were in that chapter. And a way to picture this would be if you finish a project, whether it's something around the house or it's an art project, it is finished and you step back and you look at it and you're taking delight in what you have done. You're happy with how it turned out. You're, you're content in how it turned out. So when Derek, who plays bass so well, when he finishes an epic musical score, when Christian finishes building a treehouse, when Brett or Ken finish smoking some good meat, we step back and we take delight in what we have done. And of course, now these examples pale in comparison to our sovereign God being refreshed in the work of creation. 
but we can catch a small glimpse of it. And so let's go back to Genesis 2. Turn back to Genesis 2. And since we have looked just briefly at these passages in Exodus, we should just stop for a moment and consider how they tie in to Genesis 2. And as I was starting to study this passage, I was going back and forth and trying to decide, well, should we really jump into the Sabbath day here and look at all its implications and what it meant for the Israelites and what it meant as Jesus came and uh, fulfilled the Sabbath and now what it means for us as believers? Because it might be tempting to look at the passage in Exodus and say, well, we're seeing a tie back to creation, so the Sabbath must have been instituted in Genesis 2. But that would be incorrect. Because as we look at these three verses, we see no mention of the Sabbath. The word is not used at all. And also, there's nothing about man resting in these verses. These verses are all about God and how he rested. Man is not mentioned at all. And as we continue to look through Genesis and into Exodus, we see that there was no command that we know of to Adam to observe a Sabbath. To, there was no command to Noah, and there was no command to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the institution of the Sabbath didn't begin until hundreds of years later with the Mosaic Law. And so in my study, I decided, although we're going to jump around the edges of the Sabbath and mention it, today we are not going to do a deep dive into the meaning of the Sabbath. But I'm sure we will have opportunity in years to come as we continue to study God's Word, what that means. So we're going to stick to these three verses in Genesis. So if the Sabbath, as we know it, as it was instituted later on, is not in view here, what else can we learn from God's purpose in his rest? Well, sometimes it's important to look at what is not said, especially when we see a pattern. Because in chapter 1, there is a pattern. What do verses 3, 8, 13, 19, 23 and 31 all have in common in Genesis 1. You can look back briefly at one of those and see there is a phrase, isn't there? And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day, the second day, and it goes on. But that is not mentioned in regards to the seventh day. You would expect it to be there, but it's not. Why is that? Well, of course, God has a reason for this. Everything we read in his word has been put there for a purpose. It is not random. So God did not somehow forget to include this phrase, or he didn't think to himself, well, I've said that a bunch of times already, so I'm not going to say it again. No, we've been talking about the nature of God's rest, that it was not because he was tired, but because he was finished and he was taking delight in what he had created. Now, it's hard for us as sinful, fallen human beings to truly imagine a world without sin. But that's what God was seeing, a world without decay. And the depth and beauty of what it looked like would be startling to our eyes because our eyes have been so infected and in looking at a world full of sin. In this perfect world, man had absolutely everything he needed. 
Everything for his happiness was there. It was exactly how it should be. This was the seventh day. And the interesting thing is that this delight and perfection didn't end for a while, did it? It didn't end in 24 hours. And that's why this phrase is not repeated here. Everything was perfect until one day, of course, it wasn't. And so there was some period of time, and we don't know how long it was, where the rest and perfection of the seventh day continued on. There was no more creation work to do. Everything was perfect, and it was designed to stay that way forever. And it only stopped because of sin. And God had to go back to work in a sense. Chapter 3, verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made. That phrase didn't happen until sin again entered the world. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So the rest and delight that God had in his perfect creation had ceased. And we know that our sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The seventh day was a normal 24-hour day since that cycle had begun at the beginning of creation. But in a different sense, the seventh day continued on because it had started a time of peace and perfection that didn't end until sin came into the world. And so we've seen that God has fully completed creation, and in his resting, he takes great delight. But there's a third verb that we must consider this morning, and it's in verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. He blessed it, made it holy. And we mentioned this briefly in the beginning, that God has taken this day and he set it apart, elevating it above all the rest. And when God blesses something, you could say that he puts uh, a holy benefit on whatever or whomever he blesses. And so what would be the holy benefit of the blessing of the seventh day? Well, the blessing comes from God setting aside this day as a memorial and a day of remembrance for the work of creation. And we know that in the future, there would be blessings that would come from observing the Sabbath, but here in Genesis, it's established as a memorial to our loving and good creator. Have you ever thought about why the whole world revolves around a seven-day week? The whole world. If you think about it, it doesn't make too much sense mathematically. You can't divide 365 days into sevens. It doesn't work. And Henry Morris III, he brings this out in his great book called The Book of Beginnings. He says, The seven-day week is a unique pattern. All astronomical clocks are not divisible by seven. The lunar month is 29.53059 days. The solar year is 365.24219 days. Neither of those are divisible by seven. Furthermore, the movement of the solar system within the galaxy and the movements of the galaxy within the universe, as far as we're able to clock them, are not divisible by seven either. 
Evidently, God designed the rest day for humanity, just like he said. And so if you can't divide into sevens and weeks don't even fit well into our months, it's not exactly four weeks, it's not five weeks, it's something in between. Why does the world revolve around sevens? It's only because God established it in the order of creation. God did this for a purpose, that every week would be a cycle of us bringing, bringing us back, coming, us, coming back to the day of rest, reminding us to give glory to God as our creator for his goodness. It's a memorial to him. And John MacArthur says, to reject God as creator and to reject a six-day creation is to unbless the seventh day. It's therefore to deny God his true identity as creator. It's to rob him of glory due his name. Of course, the opposite of this is to believe what the Bible says. And when we do this, we give God the praise that only he deserves for his work in creation. So if God's purpose for blessing the seventh day was to set it aside as a memorial, so what? How does that impact our lives? Well, it can't be the worldly thinking that often creeps in, that I'm just working for the weekend. This mindset, it treats work during the week as a means to an end, just for a paycheck, and we're usually complaining the whole way as we go. Well, as we'll see next week, work was created and instituted before the fall it is a good thing. And we as believers, we have an opportunity to be a witness in this area. I believe that in our light of our understanding of this passage, we should look at the seventh day as an opportunity to enjoy God's creation and thank him for it. I don't know how it was for you growing up, but for me growing up, Saturday was a day that I was outside. And of course, it started with outside chores, which I admit I struggled with at times, but now I look back at it and I'm thankful that I was raised with this way because it instituted and it gave me, uh, as we talked about last week, that we are to take dominion and authority and be good stewards of the creation that God has given us. That instituted in me a desire to take care of God's creation, even if it was just the front and backyards of what we had. But I also look back on Saturdays, a lot of fond memories of hikes, of swimming, of going to the beach in California, of riding bikes, skateboarding. And while all of this could happen during the week, that was not the focus. During the week, the focus was school and other things. But Saturday's focus was the freedom of being outside. And of course, Sunday's focus was the Lord's Day, being at church and being with God's people throughout the day. Now, as I got older, the allure of video games came, and sometimes it seemed like staying inside would be better. But my parents did a good job in balancing those things. And so I encourage us, those of us who are parents here, that we would do the same thing, to get outside on Saturdays, to set Saturday as a pattern of enjoying God's creation. And set Sunday as a pattern of coming to meet with God in church and meet with his people. 
And if we thought about this for just one moment longer, we see the blessings of both days. Saturday shows us the blessing of God as creator, and Sunday shows us the blessing of God as redeemer, culminating in the resurrection that we come to celebrate every Sunday. And so as we look at even mathematically how creation is ordered, how everything revolves around a seventh-day week, isn't maybe not just possible, a little possible, that all of this was ordained by God for his purpose and for his glory. It is. Unfortunately, most of the world pays no attention to this. And even Christians, we as Christians, sometimes we struggle with it. We get sucked in to materialism and to worldly ideas of the weekend, and we fail to give God glory for his goodness, and only he is due. And so may we repent of this as we seek and ask the Lord to search our hearts in this area. Because the consequence for those who would deny God and his word are severe. And it goes back to Romans 1. You remember this, and Ryan Russo even brought it out in his testimony on Sunday. For the wrath of God is revealed against, or from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because why? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the what? creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So you see all of that goes back to how we look at God as creator. So many horrible sins come from denying this. That's where this road leads and will ultimately lead to eternal punishment. If you are here this morning and you know in your heart before the Lord that you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, you are still under God's wrath and you are headed for hell. Because we have all broken God's law. None of us is immune to that. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve his punishment. But in his great grace and mercy, he has sent his son Jesus, who is also God. He became man to take the punishment we deserve upon himself. And those who come to him in humility, recognizing and admitting that their sin has separated us from God, will be forgiven and given new life. And that's our desire for you this morning. So please take seriously God and his word. But for those of us who are believers here, we have another joyous application to this text. And as we've been mentioning in our study of Genesis, we've been wanting to learn and go back and seeing the beginning of creation and the original creation, but also taking note of the new creation that has happened in our life because of the work of Christ. And so in order to do that today, let's turn to the New Testament. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at a couple verses and make a couple comments. Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Verse 1. Therefore, while the promise 
of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, referring to the Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, here we are tying it back to creation. Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then a verse we know well, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, this passage, of course, deserves a couple sermons. And one day, we will study this book together, but there are a couple points to quickly bring out as we close today. First, the rest broken by the fall is restored in Christ. And the whole point of this section is to call the Jews to trust in the good news of Jesus and enter his rest. Just hearing the good news or knowing the law like the Israelites did is no good unless they are united by faith with those who believe. And verse 3 and later in the chapter as well makes it clear that this comes through belief in Christ. And belief and unbelief, it's referred to as disobedience here in chapter 4, are very serious things. Because we know that we believe and trust in Christ alone and nothing else, and that is what saves us. But you can have everything else, and yet you do not believe in Christ, and that is what will condemn you. Verse 4 calls us back to that seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And so the author of Hebrews uses the analogy of the perfect rest of the seventh day, the perfect fellowship that they had with their creator, because there were no worries, there were no pains, angers, heartaches. They did not need any forgiveness because there was no sin. They only needed fellowship with God, the fellowship that they were created to have. But their choice to sin broke that perfect rest. It destroyed that perfect fellowship. And since that time, mankind has been lost in sin and separated from God's rest. You could say that we are restless. 
But even though this terrible event occurred in God's plan before time, before time even began, his, his goal and his plan was to bring his people back into this rest. And this was accomplished by Christ. And yet, the second point to bring out here is that we look forward to a future, final, forever rest in Christ. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And we know that a future rest awaits us. Although our fellowship with God has been restored in Christ, we eagerly await, we groan with anticipation at the promise of perfect fellowship, not marred by our sinful bodies or this sinful world we live in. And Revelation 14, 13 gives us a glimpse of this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So this passage in Hebrews looks forward to that final day when all work and all striving will cease and we will forever be in the presence of Christ, freed from even the very presence of sin. And then we will return, in a sense, back to that seventh day, or as C.S. Lewis so beautifully puts it, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Don't you long for that day? I do. There is urgency to enter this rest, friends. Verse 13 here in Hebrews tells us this, that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, whom, uh, eyes of him to whom we must give account. Accounts will be given. Books will be open. Will your name be included? If it is, then you can sing with joy these words that we're about to sing in just a moment, reveling in the truth that they bring. Those he saves are his delight. We are precious in his holy sight. He won't let our souls be lost. His promises shall last because we've been bought by him at such a cost and he will hold us fast. May those words be true in your life today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a joy it is to come and to consider this rest that you instituted so long ago, this perfect rest and this perfect fellowship where you took delight in your creation. And although we lament that this perfect rest has been broken, we are so thankful and we give you glory that we have been brought back into fellowship with you once again by the blood of your son. And we look forward to the, to the day when 
we will rest forever in you in total perfection where every day is better than the day before. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.